Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. It begins with iceberg lettuce. Paulina prepares a huge salad as an appetizer. We are as unfamiliar with the concept of appetizers as we are with fresh salad. We've only seen both at restaurants where we rarely go. Wendy considers appetizers needlessly fattening, appetite-spoiling foods. We're never allowed to order them, and we never order or eat salads except whatever garnishes might be present on our plates. Also, Wendy doesn't eat fresh fruits or vegetables, so she never buys them. Most of the fresh ones we've eaten have been at meals with our Aunt Doreen. When we were younger, before the divorce, when she still cooked for my father and us, Wendy served canned peas, carrots, and beans. The worst was the canned asparagus, as she forced us all to try once, exclaiming, asparagus is a delicacy. Delicacy, I decided, is code for disgusting. I got sick after swallowing it. I hadn't eaten a vegetable besides the corn they ladled into school lunches in years, and judging by their obvious tentativeness as they stare at their own bowls, I doubt my brothers have either. Yet here we are, sitting in front of bowls filled with several different vegetables we know we're required to eat every bite of. My father expects us to do this as a courtesy to Paulina. Nestled in the iceberg lettuce lay sliced tomatoes, square-cut cucumbers, chopped green peppers, pink-laced onions, cut carrots, and an as-yet-unidentifiable small white vegetable whose variety and type I had never seen. I wait for my father to pick up his fork, our sign to begin eating, when David yells out, Ah! and thrusts his fingers into his bowl, extricating a wiggling white grub. I stare at the grub in David's fingers. Paulina screams and jumps out of her seat. Moses says, Wow! Moses likes bugs. I think he's excited to have one join us at the table. My brothers and I are simultaneously reminded of David's potentially punishable etiquette breach. We all gape at my father while Paulina continues to scream. My father, although rattled by the wiggling grub and Paulina's screaming, manages to maintain his authority for the moment by asking David to remove the grub from the table. But as David pushes away from the table, my father makes the mistake of glancing down into his own bowl, an inevitable thought having crossed his mind before ours. He's unprepared for what he sees. Evidently, crawling in his bowl are several of the same grubs. He yells, and he attempts to push his bowl away as he dumps it across the table where the grubs from his bowl lie wiggling between the dinnerware. It's really funny, but no one laughs. Paulina begins a new round of screams, and Moses and I begin the excavation of our own bowls for grub family members. We find them easily. They are the now identifiable small white vegetables I was wondering about. What's the matter with you? Are you some kind of moron? My father snarls. 
Paulina stops screaming and makes a small moaning sound, holding her face in her hands as she leans over and clutches the table. David sits still in his chair, the wiggling grub in his fingers. Didn't you wash these before you served them? How could you miss bugs crawling around in a salad? Clean up this mess, you idiot. Any pretense of polite behavior towards his new wife disappears. We scan Paulina for a reaction. She casts a dejected look downward. Yeah, I, I guess I, forget to, I forgot to wash the lettuce. He snorts. When he rages, he makes me think of an angry moose. His nostrils flare and his head goes down as though he's ready to charge. We all wait, adrenaline pumping to see what direction he's headed. He stomps out, grabbing his keys and jacket on the way. I'm going out to dinner for a good meal. Maybe you'll think about how to be a better cook when I'm gone. Instead of arguing like Wendy would have, Paulina just nods. I'll do better next time. Good, he shouts and slams the door. After a few moments of silence, David yells, Call Freddy! Moses and I laugh. Paulina sits there confused. We're all relieved and thankful for his exit. This is an improvement from his behavior with Wendy. My brothers and I stare at one another, a bit shocked. We aren't shocked at the shouting. We're, we're shocked Paulina didn't get beaten. Our father's verbal violence usually escalates. His previous exits usually followed a physical attack. Paulina notices our shocked expressions. He's mad because I don't know how to cook real good, she says. He's been real patient with me. I'm still bad at it, though. Last night's meal tasted good, Moses says sweetly. David and I agree. Paulina hangs her head. Moses remains unfazed by the grubs. David jumps up to clear the plates. I'll throw this all out in the trash in the garage. Paulina heads into the kitchen. Before David leaves the table, I whisper to my brothers, Hey, did Paulina say anything to you guys about Mom? You mean that she might die? David says casually. Moses' head snaps up. What? Mom might die? No, no, sir. I, I don't think it's true, I say. More for Moses than anything. No, I, I don't think so either, David adds, realizing the way his words are hitting Moses. Moses' eyes fill with tears, and he pans from one to the other of us and shakes his head, not knowing what to believe. I push back my chair and stand up from the table. I meet David's eyes and roll mine at him. He rolls his back at me and then gathers all our grubby salads and leaves for the trash. Don't worry, Moses. She'll live. We're going to call after dinner and talk to her. He just lays his arms on the table and puts his head down. He needs dinner. I follow Paulina into the kitchen to see what else she's prepared. Something that smells like spicy bacon saturates the air and I'm hungry. I'm also certain I'll eat about anything as long as it isn't moving on my plate. I talk Paulina into serving us the rest of the dinner and the four of us go back to the table where Paulina tells us her family is part Polish and she's cooked us a traditional Polish dinner. She calls it boiled dinner with red cabbage. Thick cut potatoes and a speckled chopped meat called kielbasa. Polish sausage, she explains. It tastes spicy and exotic. We all love it. And this small piece is the, the grandfather, Saja. At 34 years, August 5th, 1944, the Black Sea, a few moments before 1 a.m., 25 miles northeast of Igniata, Turkey. 
I carried Pieter's body from the hospital like a stick and piled it in a ditch with a thousand other sticks. This became my job in those last days. We piled them precisely like railroad ties along a track bed. My mind had already split so many times I knew nothing remained inside my head but tiny bits. I lay down there in the ditch in the dusk with the dead Russian soldier Pieter, praying for my own death. I expected the guards to discover and kill me, but the guards had gone on. They had failed to notice my presence in the pile. There was no surprise in this, only an empty acceptance. They wouldn't notice. The guards' eyes crawled away from what is left of our faces, our bones. Without fat and muscle, we all looked so similar. Most of the Jews and other prisoners had been killed or marched away to other camps months before. There in the ditch, the smell of rotting flesh filled my nostrils. The frozen, muddy earth chilled my body to a numb weightlessness. Time opened, and I became lost. But Pieter's voice pulled me back to awareness. Here, he said. Pieter's mind remained whole, even after the typhoid delirium, even in death. He could conceive and grow an idea. He shared his thoughts at first whispers, then fully sounded words, the voice of a man who still craved life. He spoke directly to me. He knew my name. He knew my family. He knew everything I had forgotten. We made our deal. In exchange for my body, I let him gather and sort the bits of my mind that remained. He told me he would invent the pieces that had been lost. He would direct my thoughts. My body is a coffin for my soul, Pieter informed me. It is his idea to hide his naked body under another's after I had clothed my body in his uniform. He directed me to take off the bandage on his foot and wrap my own. The Russians had butchered Pieter's foot when he defected. I climbed with Pieter's whole mind out of the ditch. At any second, I expected I would be shouted at found out, killed, on my way back to the camp hospital in field two. I waited for the bullets as I found my way, as I entered the hospital door. No bullets came. No one noticed that Peter's hospital uniform had returned from the pile of sticks. Then I lay in the moldy hospital bed, listening as the machine gu guns kill the last of the Jews. Hundreds of starving Jews are shot in those last days. These are the same Jews who had piled the dead bodies of other Jews, the Russian prisoners who are dying of typhus, and the German guards who started to turn on each other in those last days. I should have been one of them. I found Pieter Alexandrov's name in the papers in his hospital uniform, but I know he may have been another man. Most of the Russian soldiers there in the camp hospital are defectors, like me. War changes a man's name. It changes like blood congealing, Pieter thought. Names change just as allegiances change during the war. Ibrakoman, survival. My father's word, a word from another lifetime, another past. But I have no past. Only one goal, survival.
Thank you, Dylan. Our next reader is uh, Pamela Ribbon. She is a best-selling author, television writer, screenwriter, retired derby girl, and wonder killer. In addition to her novels, Pamela continues to work in television, notably having written for the Emmy Award-winning show, Samantha Who. We're always happy to have her here. Please welcome Pamela Ribbon. Thank you. Hi. Um, for those of you who know me, thank you for coming. Hi. And those of you who don't know me, you're about to know a lot about me. <laughs> uh, if there are children here, I'm sorry. Where was the thing I was going to read? Hold on. I have one thing that I'm... That's not it. Here it is. It's back here. Okay. We said we'd play it by ear, so I'm going to do this one, because this one uh, will offend the least. <laughs> That's what I've decided. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Notes to Boys is a, a memoir about my teen years. Uh, I wrote a lot of letters to boys, and I gave them copies. I kept a copy, and I gave them a copy. And a lot of people would say, uh, well, there's a lot of questions that come up, and one is, why would you give these letters to these boys? But I think I thought they would really understand love if they read how much I loved them. Because I thought maybe they were just being shy and aloof, but they were being healthy. <laughs> and then the next question that often comes up is, why do you still have them? I don't know. <laughs> no, there's another one. Why did you publish them? And that is called closure. So. Okay, so I'm going to read very early in part one because eventually, um, and I refer to myself sometimes as Little Pam because I need emotional distance from the girl who wrote these letters. Um, eventually, Little Pam gets into some um, uh, sexy hormones. <laughs> and I know how close to the children's section we are, so I'm trying to be aware. But I don't see any kids, so if this goes well, maybe I'll read a sexy one after. It's up to you guys. You control our evening here. Okay, so this is, uh, here we go. Uh, this chapter is called 19sept.comma1990. That's how I dated all these letters and poems. Just a shitload of commas and dots, numbers tossed about here and there. It was around the same time I started intentionally pronouncing schedule with a sh sound at the beginning. I do not know why I thought I'd be just a little British. I knew not one British person. I'd never been anywhere near that side of the planet. To this day, I still say leisure with the soft E sound, something that doesn't come up all that often now that I no longer spend weekends playing Trivial Pursuit with my parents. I believe they avoided the orange category simply to keep my intentional affect from driving them crazy. Why do you keep saying it like that, they'd ask. Oh, that, that's how I'd always say it. I'd lie for absolutely no reason. And then they'd ground me. And on 19sept.com in I preserved a short moment of my life in a yellow mead notebook. I'm almost positive this story did not get duplicated and handed to the person starring in this entry because of how it ends. 19sept.com The rain pours outside my window and, name omitted, is all I think about. So here are some running themes you will soon pick up from my teen years, rain, windows, thinking. Uh, I will use pseudonyms for all the boys in these pages because even the ones who were dicks to me don't deserve this kind of public ridicule. I'll wait to give this one his nickname. He will soon earn it. My mind is stuck in the past, an hour and a half ago. <laughs> That's exactly how long it took for me to get off the school bus, walk into my house, uh, maybe call someone who wasn't home yet, possibly do all my homework and then grab my writing. I mean, I, maybe I called it a journal, but I bet I called it my writing, and I'd probably penciled this moment of reflection into my schedule. All I can think of is the way I felt 
I'm still blushing now. His touch was so soft, so caring. This is the story of the time a boy touched me really high on my thigh. It may not have been the most romantic times or places. He touched me on a school bus. But my environment seemed to disappear the moment he twined his legs with mine and linked our little fingers. He may have actually been pinning my hand down so I couldn't stop him while simultaneously making sure my feet were positioned in a way that I couldn't kick in defense. Fun fact, school bus boy didn't look at me when this was happening. We were on the bus, it was on the way home, apparently it was raining, and while everyone around us was yelling and goofing off, school bus boy decided to see just how far he get his hand up my skirt without actually talking to me, looking at me, or being my boyfriend. <laughs> This did not stop me from trying to romanticize the moment once I was safely home and alone in my room. My face runs red, remembering the feeling of his fingers tracing on my thigh. A flowing, bubbly feeling is all over my body, and I can't seem to get this dopey, prepubescent grin off of my face. I don't know what exactly a prepubescent grin is. Is that the face of an innocent child after getting groped on a bus? Because maybe grin isn't the right word there. His body was warm and he was smiling, but it was all so secretive. And the rain pours on. I'm sure I could have gone on for as long as the rain were it not for the deep thoughts that immediately followed. What is a soul anyway? <laughs> so here we go. I mean, it's a word used often, usually by poets or hopeless romantics who need a word to show the depth of their emotion, but what is a soul? <laughs> like, thank you from the laughter deep <laughs> over there. I appreciate you. Is it my feelings? My emotions? Is it my thoughts? I don't, who could I possibly be writing this to? Was it someone I was trying to impress? Was I planning on giving this to school bus boy or worse? Was I writing to some version of me in the future? Is it my desires? Is it my dreams? Is it a ball of fire deep inside that gives me the strength to go on living? I'm a little embarrassed to see I followed all my questions above with these questions here. Every time I think I'm more mature, wiser than the girl of 19 sept, I end up writing or doing something that proves I am not. But one thing is for sure, back then I definitely thought I was fucking deep. When I say that someone is invading my soul, then what do I mean? I know how I feel. I feel like that person has a place, a place in my life, in my heart, in my soul, whatever you want to call it. I feel lifted when that person is around me. I feel happy. I feel free. I'm lightheaded. It's usually called love, whatever that word means. <laughs> Why does the English language have all these words for all these things that can't be defined? That last sentence is a mind buster, isn't it? I mean, why do we define things that cannot be defined, you guys? Look how casual I am asking, is that love, whatever that word means? And then I do a little head jerk that flips my bangs to the side. So we must take a break from the story of School Bus Boy here because a couple of weeks later, I became involved in a pretty serious relationship. And just like School Bus Boy, we're gonna let him earn his name in his letter. First, this would be a good segue to explain why I cannot watch the show Hoarders. Because while all of you sit back and judge and cluck and wretch, I am breathless with anxiety, clutching my throat thinking, how can they just throw out the entire box of old onesies without asking which five are the most important? They don't even know why she saved them. There's a reason. No matter how many waterproof bins I acquire from the container store for my things, the one priceless item I can't seem to stockpile is my dignity. 1 Oct 1990, his smile, his hair, his weird, warped, twisted, beautiful personality, that's how he will always live on in my mind, forever. 
as much as I know he's right, I can't bring myself to face reality. It's over. This boy and I dated for exactly 36 hours. I cannot remember if we even had a conversation about whether or not we were actually boyfriend-girlfriend, but I do remember him calling me to break up with me. So if he had to call me to break up with me, it implies at some point we got together through word, because definitely not indeed. And I'm guessing I hung up the phone and immediately lunged for my notebook in order to catch all this fresh emotion. It's over. I keep telling myself this as I play our song over and over again. It's you two's with or without you, not that it matters. Also, apparently, he could, in fact, live without me immediately. <laughs> as I wallow in my disgusting self-pity, I replay everything in my mind, and I know that I did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. We just learned too much and too little about each other too fast. <laughs> that sounds like I had sex with this boy. I did not. I don't think anything happened, but maybe like a kiss? Maybe? Honestly, mostly I remember holding hands and listening to you two, and then a phone call the next day where he dumped me, because apparently he, we had learned both too much and too little about each other too fast. I'm sure that's a Bruce Springsteen song or something. 36 hours boy was on the small side with brown floppy hair. Floppy skater hair will be a thing with me that started with Holly Hunter boy and will continue on through my Johnny Depp fixation, 1987 to present, and a thick twangy accent. His first real, his real first name is Super Southern, the kind of name that normally belongs to a country music star. I think his parents were wealthy maybe. I'm fading here because this is literally all I remember about him. I no longer remember his last name. No, I still don't. But back then, on 1 October, oh, how I remembered everything. Oh, I just remembered it. <laughs> he said he cared. He said he'd never mess behind my back. <sighs> well, he did keep his promise. I like to picture I'm holding some kind of martini here, wrist bent, elbow tucked into my hip. Well, he did keep his promise. So bitter already, having never traveled to a second or third base. And I kept mine. When he held my hand, I knew it was the start of something good, something really good, something real, something that will last, something whole and massive and whirling and twisting, and it's probably good that he broke up with me as quickly as he did for his sake. Passionate and beautiful and wonderful and exhilarating and hilarious and weird and giddy and tingly and ecstatic and there, I mean really there. He kissed without force, held me without domination, well, it really sounds like he didn't want to kiss me or hold me, but maybe because it was the start of something weird. He liked me. He liked me. He liked me. And for one ridiculous, I'm sorry, that was me. But for one miraculous weekend, he was mine and I was his and we pledged eternal faithfulness and we laughed. I bet that's the first time I ever thought of putting the emphasis on a different word through repetition and I bet I thought I invented that shit. Did we laugh because of the pledge? Did he pledge to be faithful and then bust out laughing as I was all, we're laughing together because love is so ecstatic. We held each other. We shared numerous feelings and emotions, romance, fright, disgust, humor, and wonder. And more than half the numerous things we shared sound like they weren't fun at all. I seem to have given this boy one really shitty weekend of virginal song looping, super tight hand holding, and maybe, I don't know, scab picking? I'm just trying to nail down the disgust part. We knew each other, I thought. It felt so great having someone care about me. Someone who picked me up when I fell. Oh, definitely scab picking. Someone who wanted me to be by my side instead of expecting me to do it without question. Someone who treated me as an individual and a thing of beauty. Someone with common interests. <laughs> Someone with common goals. Someone whom I respected and respected me. God, has anyone else felt like this? Or am I the only one with these feelings? 
Sounds like I found someone very special there. I learned a lot about this boy, so for God's sake, I hope I don't go and do something stupid now like learning too little. He said he was serious. Serious about us. He said it. I heard him. I heard him, Your Honor. What possesses a boy to change his mind in the course of 24 hours? I'm going to answer that real quick. Me. <laughs> I do. It's important to note that from here on out, my handwriting goes batshit crazy. He called me. He said he needed to talk. Said he thinks he's tied down. Said he wants to be free. Be free! Said he didn't want to hurt me. Then he said the worst. The F word. Friend. He said he liked me, but he didn't want a girlfriend at the time. He said it's going too fast for him. Was it for me? And that he doesn't really know me. Do I agree? Seems like he let me down kind of easy and even gave me a couple of ways that I could try to talk him into seeing me again for another day of finger linking and Bono singing. Not like my first boyfriend in the fifth grade with whom I'd only had one conversation the entire time we were going together. The one who broke up with me by having Matt Fakes tell me at recess that my boyfriend didn't think I was cute anymore and he wanted to go with somebody else. I didn't even change Matt Fakes' name right there because I'm that kind of emotionally scarred to this day. <laughs> Not that I hoard all of these memories. That's the last time I've spoken to him in five hours, which is my favorite sentence of this entire letter. <laughs> my heart aches at the loss. Then I thought of his words, I hardly know you, which I'm guessing he said with like a lot of fear because I was intense. <laughs> I thought about this. What was his middle name? What was his favorite movie? What kind of books does he read? <laughs> Jesus, I'm a nerd. When did he start to like me? Why is he a grade younger than I am when he's the same age? What's his favorite ice cream flavor? Gosh, I hope it's book, just like mine. What classes does he take in school? What does he want to be when he grows up? When is his birthday? Is he a virgin? Did I really know this person that I pledged eternally faithful to? And if he didn't know me, why did he care? Why did he want me as a girlfriend one day and a good friend the next? What did I do? What can I do? Boys are weird. <laughs> 36 hours boy and I had something special, but I didn't realize how special until a couple of weeks later. The story continues thusly. I only use the word thusly to impress the me of 19 September who would have raised one eyebrow to acknowledge me before breaking into a prepubescent grin. One night, my parents were out of town, and because I wasn't a girl with a healthy amount of self-esteem, nor was I convinced the people I was hanging out with actually considered me a friend, they were somehow suddenly all over at my house, even though they weren't allowed, and even though I didn't know half of them which probably means I was right that they didn't consider me a friend. But I believe they were all pretty respectful as far as a bunch of teenagers sitting in a stranger's house can be. They mostly used my couches to goof off, talk about music, and drink vodka out of thermoses. It was like a punk rock tea party. I imagine they discussed important topics of the day like skipping a pep rally or the new Jane's Addiction album or if it was better to buy Doc Martens at the sporting goods store and uh, where it's cheaper or drive an hour away to the, goth the punk goth boutique in downtown Houston for the authenticity. The reason I didn't know what they actually discussed is because I was in my bedroom where school bus boy was seeing just how far he could get with me now that we were in a non-moving object. In the dark, in my bed, both fully clothed, shoes on. I do think though, if I have to be completely honest, that we were not the only ones in the room. I mean, because I know this. I know there was someone else on the floor of my room when we started kissing. And I know this because the boy on the floor would one day be my boyfriend. And he told me about this awkward night when he thought he was hanging out with some people only to hear them start smacking away. <laughs> I only include this because I think there's a real dividing line to our makeout sessions in life. As long as you don't care if someone else is in the room listening to your sloppy slurps and groans, I think you can safely say you're still firmly in your youth. <laughs> Congrats, polyamorous ones. <laughs> 
Anyway, our accidental creeper didn't get too much of an earful as I had to deliver some bad news to school bus boy, which I whispered as seductively as I could muster. You, uh, you have to stop now because I'm on my period. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> school bus boy abruptly stood up and left the room. <laughs> I later found him in the kitchen where I asked the only question appropriate for the moment. Are you mad at me? <laughs> he looked anywhere but in my direction, seemingly uncomfortable. Can't imagine why. No, I'm not mad, he said. He quickly squeezed my hand before walking away. And I remember the hand squeeze, not because it was a sweet, silent comment on how he could, empathi how he could empathize with how rough it must be to be a teen girl, but rather because he would intentionally grow out his fingernails and then file them to a sharp claw-like point. Well, it's hard to figure out who you are when you're a 13-year-old girl. I can't imagine how much more difficult the same thing must sometimes be for a 13-year-old boy. I remember the squeeze because his t pinky nail dug into my palm and it hurt like a bitch. When school bus boy left the kitchen, I was immediately confronted by my ex-boyfriend, 36 hours boy. It had been a good two weeks since our whirlwind romance, so I knew the wounds were still fresh for both of us. <laughs> Did you just make out with school bus boy? He asked, his face unreadable because I didn't understand boys. I don't know, I answered, trying to sound both smug and aloof. 36 hours boy shook his head. You did, didn't you? Does that upset you? I asked in a most soap operatic fashion. I might have placed a hand on a door frame from optimum emotional leaning. Yeah, he said, pushing past me. You made him win. I spent the rest of the weekend mulling that over. You made him win. What cryptic message was my past true love telling me? Did he want me back? Were they both after my heart and it somehow seemed like I had made a choice? What had he won? The chance to own my heart? I had days to figure it out as I was super grounded after that night. I got busted due to the traces of my former lover, 36 hours boy. Uh, he had the master toilet seat, was, the master bathroom toilet seat was raised, which means boys were here and you are grounded. I couldn't be bothered to spend my imprisonment thinking of what I'd done to anger my parents when I had to figure out what I'd done to upset 36 hours boy. He seemed so troubled. You made him win. Win what? I was unable to sleep so firmly in the middle of such an emotional triangle. Oh, boys, gentlemen, do let us try to be civil. Perhaps I should hear each of your desires listed in order of importance before I choose which of you shall slide next oh, which of you shall next slide a hand near my underpants as we ride our bright yellow chariot. Please also list your top five favorite books and ice cream flavors. Thank you. In the lunchroom a few days later, there was a small commotion. At a table far from where I sat, two girls I did not know were yelling at each other. As it got heated, word was spreading. The girls were friends, good friends, and something had come between them. The fight escalated, and they stormed out of the room together. They returned soon after, making a beeline to school bus boy's table where they stopped. A few words were exchanged before one of the girls slapped school bus boy across the face, and then the other girl slapped him harder. Uh, the, the other girl slapped him harder, and the crowd was all, ooh. And then the girls left holding hands, and school bus boy stared at his lap. This is when 36 hours boys stopped by my table. They found out about the bet. Dumbass gave both those girls the same apology letter when he should have known they were best friends. What an idiot. But that's how he beat me, three girls to two. 36 hours boy walked away. I never spoke to him again. I still remember how hot my face got as I stared down at my lunch tray wondering, why didn't I get a letter? <laughs> Do you want one more? Are you done? Is it good? Do you want a short one? We're good? Okay. We're good. Can <laughs> we have Dylan back up, actually? Thank you.
All sorts of questions. It's <laughs> true. All sorts of oh, questions. Oh, this is quite a spectrum <laughs> of literariness. <laughs> so I wanted to, to ask you both, can you just talk a little bit about your writing processes? Because you seem to be two very different writers. <laughs> I was curious to know if they're different, yeah. how you go about writing, or if, if they're actually quite similar. Okay. You, want... My, you mean writing process, the physical process? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I try to carve at least two days a week out of my week my, um, from my civilian job to write. I spend about 15 minutes uh, on Facebook answering emails and then I spend about a half an hour pretending I'm not doing that again. And then I just do it. I, I lock the doors, I don't listen to the cat, I don't eat anything, I don't drink anything and I write until the light fades or my stomach grumbles or the cat jumps on me. <laughs> um, I tend to have a few deadlines going at once, so it's very deadline oriented, and I know it's time to write stuff down when I hear the people talking. In this case, it was myself, so that was weirder. <laughs> but when I knew my young self and my current self were ready to get on the page, that's when that's when I write the best. But I also need, you know, you need Twitter and Facebook and music and all those things to <laughs> to remind you <laughs> that you'll have a life again someday. <laughs> favorite writer is Arundhati Roy, um, God of Small Things. And um, sorry, I'm losing all your questions. Um, civilian, job. civilian job, I work as an interior designer. And what was the inspiration for the second story, Saja's story? Um, when I was a little girl, I used to go visit my grandfather and there was a photo of his family that hung in this really dark hallway. And when I asked him, who all the people in the, the picture were, he told me, well, that's me and the rest of my family. But when I asked him about the rest of his family, he wouldn't tell me anything and died with his story. Um, so I invented the character of Saja to kind of give myself some history. Um. Yeah, I'm here because uh, I'm uh, a fairly good friend with uh, J. Dillon Small. Yeah, I'm Helen. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, uh, we uh, are both very much into uh, you know our memories of the '60s, the folk singing and stuff like that. And uh, I uh, understand that your book has a lot of uh, that in it, and uh, what it was like to uh, grow up with. Uh, uh, I guess very uh, 60s-ish or maybe uh, could be like uh, parents. And uh, yeah, uh, it, it must be interesting. My first question would be, do you like, uh, what's your reaction when you hear Peter Paul and Mary? Is it something that you like or does that bring back maybe uh, some unpleasant memories? Oh, oh, you know what, I love folk rock to this day. And, and the people that I really love who are contemporary have that kind of sound to them, I think, you know. But it's important that people know that this is not my childhood. <laughs> you know? I was, uh, when you were reading, I was 
it was it was very meta, right? <laughs> sort of, do you think like in twenty years you'll be looking back at this and thinking, oh my god, why did I do that? <laughs> yeah. What would you say? What would your twenty-year-old person, older person, say about you now? Uh, I don't know. I I, I I hope I don't regret it. I'll have at that point a twenty-year-old daughter. So that's when will I have let her read it by then? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I feel like I hope that if she is the kind of teenager who needs this book at fifteen, that I will be happy to give it to her, and it we won't it won't be weird. I mean, it'll be weird, but it won't be like. Oh, it'll probably just be weird. <laughs> like, mom, you got growth on the bus. Yeah, mom, I don't want to see this. But maybe she can think of that as like the, you know, like that's not exactly me because that would have been a long time ago me. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't have. I'm sorry. Was it, were, oh, Pesty moved, oh, she had to go, Julie had to go. My, my publicist was here, and it's her publishing house that did this. She was the publicist for my last book. <laughs> so I was doing a reading here of my last book, and I had brought with me some of my teenage letters because I had been writing about them on my website. And I read them to the audience, and they were making the laugh moans and stuff, and, uh, and she and her uh, boss turned to each other and said, I think, we need to make little Pam have her own book. So they approached me. I don't know that I would have <laughs> thought, like handed, so they said, you know, can we? And I said, I feel like you're serious. This is, we're very serious. And then I really wanted to do it. It sounded like a lot of fun. It sounded like more fun than the actual, like revisiting that time ended up being at times. But uh, I'm really glad they asked and I'm, I'm, I'm really, like, they did such a nice job with the cover and everything. So, uh, yeah, so, so here. Came out here at Skylight. See, magic happens yeah. in Skylight. Just so you know, you read letters, and all of a sudden you got a book deal. Yeah. What you're asking is, where did I get the inspiration? The the piece that I read was actually the beginning of the book, Once Upon a Time. Um, I rewrote the first 35 pages for almost 30 years before I got beyond them. And so, um, so maybe what you're hearing <laughs> is a little perfectionism. <laughs> I don't know.
Thank you. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting when you're writing. Are you a writer? Sometimes uh, what I hear from other writers is there's this thing that happens, sort of like automatic writing, mm -hmm. where you're writing and it's that muse, you know, that you find in other arts as well, dance or theater or wherever, um, you know, painting, painting a painting, um, where it's almost like it comes from somewhere else. And so I, I did really hear that voice of Saja as I was writing through. And, and I think, you know, writing any characters, you know, when, you, when you've got a strong beat on whatever it is you're putting down, that just happens. It's, it's lovely. I mean, it doesn't always happen. You know, you pray for the moment. Um, but when it does, it's lovely. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Um, Thank you. We'll do this last question because it seems like uh, time, yeah. the distance of time, played a lot of, was, was very influential in both of your work. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm curious to know, um, I mean, obviously it's become very clear that looking at writing decades later <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> makes a huge difference. Can you, can you talk a little bit about just sort of um, time and, and how that's uh, worked in your lives as far as, as, as who you are as writers and who you, who you see yourselves as um, uh, people writing about the past. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, it does. Well, you know, when you're writing about high school, your first thought is you're probably going to be writing about everything that made you so angry and hate because we just call high school the worst time ever. And so what was nice about going back to this and having to ask friends that I still have from that time if they remember things the same way, I got to remember all these good moments that I had in high school and all the like the friends that I had that got me through it. You don't, you know, my army, my little, my little army. Um, so that made me, I think, have a, a, a nicer memory of my high school experience than I think I thought going in, where I was just like, here, I, I mean, it's a war. <laughs> but then, I, you know, then you remember your, your army, yeah, your platoon. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting you ask that question because time in my book is a big subject, um, or more accurately, the loss of time for both of these characters um, with their dissociative episodes. Um, and so, you know, um, in Jules's case, she loses months at a time in her memory in order to cope with the traumas that she is experiencing. And as I shared in that passage with Saja, he's, you know, he's literally exchanging his mind and the time spent in the Madonic death camp um, and then later um, crossing in the schooner the Metcure that was torpedoed after the war. Um, so it's, um, I, I, I love that element. Um, I became fascinated with that element, actually, the more I learned about dissoci dissociative uh, episodes um, in, in developing the characters. Does that answer your question? It does, actually. <laughs> Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.